It's Monday, July 23rd, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 170 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and uh, another creative artist. Today, that artist is percussionist, curator, sculptor, restaurateur, unbelievably exceptional dude, Ben Hall. Ben Hall is on the show today, and it's a good one. Before we get into it, um, a couple of things to talk about. Number one, next week, Brooklyn, Arate the third uh, concert and live podcast taping that we'll be doing uh, with Zena Parkins. That's next week, July 31st at Arate. Go to aratevenue.com for more information. 20 bucks at the door. Going to be a good show next week. One bit of business to talk about, uh, and I think this is probably going to upset a bit of you, uh, and I... I'm not going to apologize. I will just acknowledge that this will likely be upsetting to some of you. Going forward, all of the 100 most recent episodes of the podcast will be available in iTunes and on the 5049 website. That will continue as it has. For access to the archive, that access will be available exclusively to Patreon contributors. As I'm sure most of you know, this show operates on a subscription-based model. That is through the platform of Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast and you can opt in for different monthly pledges. Some of you have been on the Patreon since I first brought the show back in 2016, and I don't say thank you enough, uh, and I want to say thank you. And to those of you who are already signed up to the Patreon, uh, I'm going to be sending you a special gift this week via download, uh, and I should be doing that kind of stuff more often. But from here on out, uh, access to the podcast archive, which at this point is something like you know 70 past episodes, uh, you will need to be a Patreon donor to do that. So go to the Patreon, uh, sign up. You can sign up for you know five bucks a month, three bucks a month. It's really not a lot of money, um, but I promise you it goes a long way on this end. So I welcome your thoughts. Um, if, if you know this is upsetting to you in any way, uh, I'm sorry. All right, today on the show, Ben Hall. Do you guys know Ben Hall? God damn, is he a talented man. I've known of Ben for many years and have met him briefly once or twice over the years. Uh, I mentioned it to Ben on the show today. Many years ago, my dear friend Nate Woolley, who is also a close friend and collaborator of Ben, he would say to me all the time, oh, you and Ben, you guys got to know each other. You guys have a lot to talk about, you and Ben. So I've kind of had this this image of Ben Hall in my mind for a long time. Um, and I just have to tell you right now, today's conversation with Ben could have and should have gone on for four or five hours uh, to try and put what Ben does, all of it, into one little introduction right here or even have a concise conversation is is is, is tricky. Why? 
Ben isn't just a musician. Um, he comes from an interesting background. We get into it today. Uh, it's not your conventional, uh, you know, liberal arts um, conservatory background. In addition to being an exceptional musician and, you know, really uh, inquisitive and curious improviser, Ben runs his own record label. It's called Broken Research. So that's, you know, that, that's an extra activity on top of the music making. He's also uh, an accomplished sculptor. He got an MFA at Columbia, and his stuff's amazing. So that's, that's quite a lot. He also maintains, curates, digitizes a vast archive of over 6,000 recordings of old gospel, historical sermons, historical black music. It's called Baptism. On top of that, he owns and operates uh, a restaurant in Detroit, Michigan called Russell Street Deli, which is working with genuinely progressive uh, business models that puts employees first. I ran into Ben about a year ago. He was in town being honored by the James Beard Foundation for his work in the restaurant world and and how he's looking at it uh, much differently than restaurateurs historically have looked at it so that's a lot um and for the conversation today i think we talk about like four things for about 25 minutes each it's a little tricky you know we i had to get i had to rush the conversation a little bit because i was running late to get somewhere um but still that you know we could have just talked forever and ever and you know there are parts of the conversation today that i hope are interesting to all of you we do talk uh, a good bit about restaurant business ethics um you know many of you know that i worked and work in restaurants for for many many years so that's a topic that is you know really fascinating to me if you want to find out more about Ben, I'm going to put a series of links uh, at the bottom of, of this page at 5049records.com. Um, but go to the website, cbenhall.com. That's S-E-E-B-E-N-H-L-L.com. He's an extraordinary dude. Uh, he's put out a lot of records with people like John Olson and Nate Woolley. Bill Dixon, Joe Morris, you know, if, if you're detecting a theme of top shelf improvisers here, then, uh, then, then you're, you're, you're right on the money. Ben is a top shelf improviser, you know, for the sake of this show, that's perhaps the thing to focus most on, but Ben is an extraordinary guy for whom I have the utmost admiration. Go to cbenhall.com. Go to the 5049 website. You can link to the Patreon. You can check out, you know, all of the current episodes. And if you want to kick in a few bucks, you'll have access to the whole archive as well as some other treats. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Ben Hall. He was here about an hour ago picking up 500 CDs that I just got rid of. I'm getting rid of Oh, them. right. I saw that you were... Yeah, I'm getting, getting rid of everything right now. Okay. Like a, like a, like a cancer patient or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, not, not quite like One that. way to put it. Um, but it is grand. Check. Yeah, we're good. Um, no, that, you know... I was We were talking about that the other day, and one thing that is like really... Big is it okay here? Yeah, it's perfect. 
like clear to me with like the Me Too and everything that's been going on is just if someone ever says that their feelings have been hurt, if they've ever if they if they say that they're upset about something, to just let that be the case and apologize and listen. Like you don't I think it's natural for a lot of people to explain themselves on why they didn't mean to be offensive, didn't mean to hurt somebody, but like if someone's feelings are hurt, like and this isn't necessarily like me too. Right. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like you just have to trust that oh yeah, your feelings are hurt and that's that's perfectly fine. That's no, fine. yeah. I mean, well, I think it's like there's definitely an ancillary with racism and you know my my wife's mixed. I'm mixed. My dad's mixed. I come from a long line of mixy, mixy, mi- mixy, <laughs> mixy people. Swirly, as my wife calls it. Um, we're about to have some swirly ass kids. Well, they're, uh, they're, are they going to be equal parts swirly? Or we, we don't know. Like we don't know. We we saw a mixed couple the other day. We were dri- we were driving to Pennsylvania, and it was like a real like it was like an Escalade, and this like white dude gets out who's pretty big. Like a little, like hasn't been to the gym in a while. Right. Cargo shorts, some like kind of goofy shirt. And I like saw, I thought I like spied like a very dark skinned woman. And I was like, well, maybe that's like the tint. And then they, their kids got out and each one of them looked exactly the same, mm-hmm. which is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Like they were just all the same color, the same hair, the same eyes. And we were like, my wife and I were just like, oh, what beautiful children oh, it's so good. you have. It's um, so good. But yeah, the, I think the thing there is that there's a, there's a Paul Beatty poem. I mean, now that Paul Beatty's all popular, I can't like I can't <laughs> drop this as hard. Now it looks like I'm trying to drop like the Man Booker Paul uh, Beatty rather than like the Paul Beatty from back in the day. But he says uh, something about like because I think Paul Beatty is mixed, mm-hmm. and you know it says something about how your understanding of this thing like if you're a secret agent like you under you hear things that you're not supposed to hear and i think it's almost like with men you know as a bartender it's like you know like a guy is like okay and he shows up with his wife and it's great and then his wife goes to the bathroom and then like the like foulest shit ever comes out of his mouth because he's like amongst men and it's just that to me is like kind of the dirty shit it's almost like cheating it's like, yeah, if mm-hmm. you want to step out, like, then you got to, like, talk about it. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, if you don't already have a situation in place, which means you can't step out, but you step out, like, you got to deal with what that means. But it's dirty if you try to get away with it. So right. I think, like, the Me Too part is, like, yeah, like, people saying shit, and then they're like, oh, I didn't say that. That's not what it meant. And it's like, well, you're just trying to get away with it. If you did it more than right. once... I mean, Aziz Ansari, like, we, we haven't had, heard the second letter yet. Uh, you know, that one, I got to <laughs> potentially bite my tongue. <laughs> no, I mean, it, well, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not yeah. riding for Aziz. I'm saying that, like, everything, when I read that letter the one, that the woman wrote. The woman wrote, published in that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everything she said seemed like I've heard all my women friends, even girlfriends, define exactly that same thing with men. Like, sure. note for note. Yeah, like it's pretty the verisimilitude is pretty high. Yeah, and he apologized, rightly so. And then there was a thing in the Atlantic where some other woman said, "Like, well, you got to take responsibility for putting yourself in that situation." And it was like, "Well, well what's I, what's feminism again? I'm not even sure who's right well, now." That's, I mean, that's a trip. Like, uh, you know, my wife is. I won't say. You know, she's. You know, above the age of thirty-five, and hearing <laughs> uh, women like 
35 and up that you know it's like it's it's this weird thing and i've been talking about it a lot with myself which is you know i grew up in the 80s with like super liberal parents so i just thought like culturally culturally evolutionarily like i was cool like that there was no more like acceptance or learning right, to have right, to take right, right, place right. and clearly i'm learning that that's not true and there's there's that thing with feminism because like all these women i hear talk about like the weinsteins and all this stuff they're mm-hmm. like well you know they they chose to go up to that hotel room they knew that there was going to be some sort of exchange and it's like whoa well, I think, I mean, I think the the empathetic, like, the empathetic response, if you, like, believe in the Buddha nature, uh-huh. is that people are hoping that it's going to turn out all right, that it's not going to be shitty. Yeah. That it's like, people aren't going to be, like, pieces of shit. But that is so contrary <laughs> to my basic understanding of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I think, like, I mean, even in music, like, you still sometimes, like, show up to gigs that you know aren't going to be good and then they're they're not good uh-huh. and then you could do it again right like uh-huh. <laughs> it's not like, like a crazy you, person yeah yeah you know like over and over i mean even playing i mean i think it even just talking about i mean living in detroit not living in new york not living on the east coast anymore i don't have as many opportunities to play and when people in detroit ask me to play I'm not always open to it because uh-huh. it's not just it's just not the best use of my time i'm like right why don't we just go have a beer or have a cup of tea and hang out rather than, because we could probably have a good conversation, but we're probably going to make mediocre music. You don't say that. I mean, that's my, that's, that's my the thought. thought process, well, yeah. you know, and there's like a lot of bad motherfuckers in Detroit, like in the jazz world and uh-huh. people who are, I mean, weirdly, like they still suggest that we get together and I'm not like, I don't think of myself as a misanthrope at all. No, I'm just like, there are other options I mean the to, community to have, aspect, like, good feelings. The, yeah, the community <laughs> aspect, the the people aspect of music, you know, really kind of separates it in many ways from like you know sculpture or or yeah. writing, something that's like you know hermetic practice. And music is largely hermetic, you know, what you do in the practice room, what you do when you're composing, or whatever it is. And to have a sense of like, like someone like Derek Bailey would say, you should play with everyone at any given time, and and that's like an improviser's nature, right. I don't want to play with everyone at any given time. <laughs> when I think like Derek is a good example of like he did that and it performed a path, but like usually when people try to reverse engineer that and do their own company, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily work. No. Because, it, you know, it's a certain thing that happened at a certain time. And that's why, I mean, if we looked at it, if, I mean, if, I mean, especially inside of improvisation or kind of like, out jazz or something if it was you know we can hope for one day that you know people will talk about frank Lowe in the Mm -hmm. same way that they talk about yayoi kasama or something Mm -hmm. that it that it was the most that it was this like hugely important thing that happened but i mean even the people who are the post minimalists or the people who are around at the same time like someone like ingram marshall like no one gives a shit about ingram marshall no Mm -hmm. one no one's like judson is having a little comeback so that's Mm -hmm. nice but for the most part, I think in that time, like if we looked at if we look at it and we look at it historically under the same lens that we look at other shit, we would say that like that thing happened at that time for that reason, and we have to acknowledge that that happened in that time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just end up like recreating. You you I mean nobody wants to hear about the second wave of abstraction. <laughs> no one's talking about Morris Lewis or Ken Nolan right now. Like no one is talking about those dudes. 
And I don't think they'll talk about them. You know, they're just part of, you know, they're what makes the pyramid tall. Right. But, but you know. Right. No, that's a good way to put it. There's, you know, I've said this before, but like, if you go to roulette, mm-hmm. uh, they have on the wall, they have all these like old uh, posters, like past seasons, going all the way back to like late 70s, early 80s. And you're looking at these like concerts and it's like, you know, Amori and right. John Zorn and like the heroes of like downtown music. But then there's all these concerts with these names that you're just <laughs> like, who the fuck was that? You know? Yeah. And in any scene, whether, you know, whatever it is, literature, jazz, whatever, like for all the Coltrane's and the Mileses that you know, right. think of all the people. Like the hundreds, the thousands of people, yeah, man, that people just don't know. They well, just... it's the same in like if you go like if you look at an issue of Art in America in 1982, right. like it's like uh, you guys ain't talking about nothing. And then you look at the ads and look, the advertisements for galleries that you've heard of that are still in business and museums that are still in business, uh-huh. and those you're like, who are these people? And then you find out that it's someone who just didn't make it. I mean, I think it's a bit more like sports. Like, right. You can be like a killing high school player, I mean, and not make the college team, right? It's like right. 0.4 seconds is the difference between being a wide receiver and being a lineman. So now you're a right. lineman and you got to like gain 85 pounds. And that's right. it. It's and it. if you, you yeah. either do that or you don't, you're not you because you can't really get faster. Like you've already hit as fast as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> and there, you know, it keeps at certain stages. I feel like there, it keeps clearing people out. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I mean, what makes this different, I think, or art and makes it kind of more interesting is you can you can show up. It's more like activism in that way. Mm-hmm. Like if you show up, you might get the gig. Right. There's a lot of people that continue to show up and, mm-hmm. you know, they get the gig for, you know, simply by attrition. Yeah, by attrition. And I mean, you know, they, they do accretionally improve. <laughs> I mean, I would like right. to, you know, it's showing up is, is a, it's a form. It's a form and yeah. it's a skill and yeah. it's a, it takes like a tenacity that perhaps not all people have. Yeah. Or, I mean, even, you know, I feel really super I mean, I don't use this word very much, but I feel super blessed that, mm. I mean, I was happy that I had to be at a wedding before I came to New York because it gave me a reason to be on the East Coast. So I get to drive out with my wife and spend time with my wife mm-hmm. and then we get to go to the wedding and then I get to like bump up to New York and it's only a couple hours, but mm-hmm. like I'm also able to afford to be able to rent a car mm-hmm. so I don't have to worry about the car breaks down. I call Enterprise, bring mm-hmm. a new car, get new one. <laughs> I can stay at the, you know, I can stay at the Hilton. Yeah. I can park the car in a garage and not worry about shit. Right. You know, like that's a very different. And I mean, I've lived the other side uh-huh. where it's like sleeping next to a cat box. And yeah. You know, and yeah. like duct tape on the clutch and, you know, hoping that the car is still there, you know, all of those things. But I think that that tenacity also makes you maybe refocus on the forms that sure. you're working with and then say, well, why am I showing up? <laughs> Why do I want to keep showing that's up? An, that's right? a, it's an existential question <laughs> yeah, that I, I mean, think a lot of improvisers face. Well, especially because I mean, I think it's like you know what Joe Moore says is that it's like a self-generating thing. Yeah, if you don't generate it, nothing happens. Yeah, I mean, and I had that experience. You know, I'm you know not a little kid anymore, and I played a gig uh, a few weeks ago, an improvised gig, and the only people in the audience were the other people that were playing that night. Right, and there was that second of like i'm gonna fucking kill myself i'm gonna sell my clarinet this is what the fuck am i doing this for but then it was like oh yeah i'm doing this because i just need to keep playing right and you know this isn't about wowing an audience tonight 
you know, or it's about, you know, playing something, you know, playing something right. meaningful, but it's about, you know, working on some stuff that I want to work on. Right. In Got front it. of the, well, that is, I always think about that as like the salon. Like, well, yeah, yeah. It's almost better because, well, I went on tour with Don Dietrich two months ago. Uh-huh. Just the two of you? Yeah. So it was going to be Spencer and then we couldn't work out the timing. And so, Don, you know, Don's a business owner. I'm a business owner. Like uh-huh. when we're not at work, we lose money. Right. Like we still have to work from the road. Um, it's not, there's, there's like some clarification that has to happen in our lives to be able to take that time off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it hadn't occurred to me until I got on the road that I hadn't been on the road for eight, nine, ten days in a minute, like where I was uh-huh. on a proper, proper tour. And the first night in Chicago, it was great. There was like a lot of people there, some important minds and brains uh-huh. and from different scenes too. Yeah. And there's like some crazy scene beef going on in Detroit so people or in Chicago. So people were like, oh shit, that person's here. Oh, really? And that person like commenting oh, on it. That. I was like, well, I, I don't know. That. I'm not from here. Uh-huh. I'm just happy these people that I know showed up. Um, but, you know, it's primarily like white males in the room. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people in the room. There's like 70 men. or 80 people. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a handful of Asian people, maybe four or five, three Asian women, girlfriends. girlfriends. And then there was like one Puerto Rican dude. I mean, that like, that, and of course, I'm going to qualify this and say that read and present as white males. Right. Um, sure, sure. And then, well, it got progressively worse over the course of the tour. <laughs> of, you mean the diversity? <laughs> like just like just yeah, I mean, just kind of like just all white males. And I mean, I think about that a lot in terms of how you know what what is it that we're presenting, and what is the purpose of that presentation? If it is like a reification and codification mm-hmm. of the system well, that let, doesn't let's, necessarily let, let's unpack that because. <laughs> You know, I went to a show last night. There's a place here in New York, Max Fish. Do you know it? Yeah, yeah, of course. So they do a once-a-month series in the basement. Max Fish is my favorite bar. I'm friends with all the bartenders. I think the series that they do in the basement is the best place to play in Manhattan. That's amazing. And the bill last night was great. You know, I, I mean, it was a bunch of great people doing different shit. The room was packed. People were hanging from the ceiling. And it was, I swear to God, 35 to 40% women. Beautiful. It was... <laughs> 35% people of color, primarily one color, Asian. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, 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 there were black people there. There was, you know, like I said, 35% women, and people were having a fucking ball. And I mean, yeah. people were hanging, they were drinking, they yeah. were applauding, you know. That's the best. And <laughs> congratulations. So, the first I guess thing. I'll just walk out this window. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but I think the first part of, okay, well, why are these guys, why is that happening at Max Fish like them? Because people were straight up doing the same, you know, for, forgive me for painting in broad terms for a second, but the, you know, they're improvising, free right. improvisation with aspects of noise, with aspects of, you know, you know, long pieces, you know, stuff that, you know, we. <laughs> tend to believe is what drives you know larger audiences away <laughs> uh and i think it's largely a social aspect it's it's that you know a lot of this music appeals to people who i think are isolated hmm. lonely cut off <laughs> and i don't know yeah know, that's i mean also the like the process of discovery i mean like yeah. singular discovery because i know like uh, there are certain records that 
I, you know, there's only what a hundred people probably in the country that I can be like, yeah, that like Jerome Cooper solo uh-huh. record on about time, <laughs> you know, that's a really amazing record. And people are like, remind me again who Jerome Cooper is, <laughs> you know, people who are in right. the game and you know, you hear these stories where like Don Dietrich will say, oh, you know, like the time that I saw Peter Koval at Soundscape uh-huh. and he played for an hour and a half and there was like a puddle of sweat on the floor uh-huh. and it was me, Jim Souter, like the people who run Soundscape and Cecil Taylor. Like we were the only ones in the... <laughs> best audience in town. Yeah, right? But, yeah. So, and I mean, that's... Well, I saw... I played at F- FMU yesterday mm-hmm. and it was William Parker played before me. Oh, wow. And so I showed up, loaded in my stuff, and then got to like watch William for an hour. Private audience. Yeah, pri- I yeah. mean, there's three of us in the control room, and I was just like, this is the best. It's not, it wasn't less than. And I mean, I learned a lot just actually like remembering that this is what it looks like to do it for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, he was happy, he was having a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean nothing less than phenomenal. Right, and who is that presentation for? Right, is it for the people who are gonna the fifteen thousand people who might potentially hear it on FMU? Or I mean, it no, it's right. I mean, with William, it's definitely for. Well, yeah, and that's yeah. that's a really yeah. So Jeremiah just made a he, he just pointed <laughs> to the cosmos in case you were wondering. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, I, he he exists in a space time continuum that is very in tune with the tradition and uh, uh, you know trying to get somewhere much higher than what's around him. Right. Well, and just to go back to Max Fish, I mean, I think like with Shannon there and like the place that it is over the years, it's cultivated a thing where there is a particular kind of acceptance mm-hmm. um, and equality. I mean, that's the thing that I think is the real kicker of places that look for inclusion or look for diversity when what they should be looking is for equality and Mm anti-elitism right i mean that's like that's a kind of knock like someone will say like oh like we're diverse or like we're working on this thing i mean definitely in the chef's world yeah i mean you and i have a lot to talk about i mean well it's kind of a like it's something that i think about a lot because also i mean i've mostly spent most of my life in detroit in detroit now at its like low point is like 83% black city. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean it's been as high as like 91. That's so, crazy. Yeah, I mean it's like yeah. a black ass city. Yeah. So it's not a thing where you could get away with necessarily ostracizing people and the recent development that's happened in Detroit is very much you know, they don't I mean the I th- I would say that the it's not really a knock. Um but, you know, there's a bunch of people who are running restaurants that are, and they're part of develop, I mean. You're going to use the G word? No, no, no. I was going to say that they're, I mean, I think about it more as development as colonialism. Like yeah. If you're going to, you know, so the people who are showing up in Detroit r- right now are like rubber companies in Vietnam or Brazil or something. Oh, they're sh- right. They're, they're showing up and they're saying, you haven't monetized this properly, so we're going to take it away from you. Right. I mean, that's basically. You're talking what, about large companies. Even small companies. Yeah. I mean, even some. Well, I mean, you know, if you have five million dollars in Chicago and you want to be a developer, like tough shit. Like, buy three houses and you can own three houses <laughs> and like be a la- you can be a landlord, but you yeah. can't be a developer. Right. But with five million dollars in Detroit, you know, you might you be can... able to you might be able to build a twelve unit because the land doesn't cost anything. Right. Whereas the land in Chicago costs something. Uh, everything else costs more. Right. So right, labor right, right. labor's 
cheaper in Detroit. Um, Wait, even were you in the born trades. and raised in Detroit? Yeah. Like Detroit. Detroit, Detroit, Detroit. You, your yeah. parents are from Detroit? My parents are from Detroit. Your grandparents yeah. are from Detroit? Uh, my gr- All my grandparents ended up in Detroit. My On my dad's side, we're from Tennessee. Uh-huh. And then uh, my um, mom's side, they're French-Canadian. And you, are you, both your parents still around? No, no, they're both past. They're it's both just past. me. I got a half-sister. Uh-huh. Um, Did, and your father was African-American? Yeah. Did he... I mean, my understanding, I've talked to a few people from Detroit who are, you know... No, you haven't. <laughs> no, I've met people from Detroit before. Right, yeah. No, but people who are, you know, in their early 60s who right. talk about growing up in Detroit, you know, in the in the 50s, and it was like a utopia, that there were jobs, and and it was like the pre-forget-about-Detroit uh, yeah. moment. And what, what version of Detroit did your dad grow up in? He grew up, I mean, where people were already leaving... Um, and I mean, my dad, it, you know, my dad looks like uh, he could be a garden variety, Puerto Rican, Dominican, mm-hmm. Greek. Um, and he was, very, you know, he worked on passing because that's what he had to do. And it kind of filled him with rage because he lived in a black city. So either he could identify as a black person or he could identify as a white person. And either way means that he loses, he loses something. What well, also means there's dismissiveness on both sides. Potentially. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all the, like, Nella Larson passing shit is, like... Right. And James Baldwin shit and rage and... Um, and it's, it's like, super valid because, actually, like, he there was no place for him. And he's... There's there's a thing where, you know, Malcolm X is talking about West Indian Archie, who's the guy who he ran numbers for. And he says, like, in a different world, West Indian Archie, there's no telling what he would be, but, like, he had to be a gambler mm-hmm. in, you know, the white man's world. And my dad was definitely on that tip. Like, no one was, like, saying, like, oh, we're going to hook you up or help you out, you know? And I, I mean, I didn't grow up with my old man, so when I would hang out with him, it would be very much like, he would say, like, oh, I need, I can't go to this thing, because my dad was a gambler and he was, he he was a hustler. He a gambler? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, he, like, bookmaker and... I mean, when he was young, he was like a leg breaker. So then oh, for real? he was like, well, you don't make that much money that way. <laughs> and it's like kind of a shitty job. So, so to come up, he became yeah. a bookmaker. Well, he was like, well, I could do what you do. You right. pay me to go collect the money, but I could also make take the bets. Right. And then also, I don't have to spend money to hire somebody to like fuck somebody up. Yeah, it's two for one. <laughs> yeah, right? So, <laughs> I mean, that's like how he always made money. And I mean, Detroit always had like a lot of, like different social economies and yeah. for him it was different because he said oh well i can go to this white place and i can make money i can go to a black place and i can make money that's a real yeah so plus. He, yeah he's like expanding his market right and he understood those things tacitly um was he like open with this like you knew at a young age that that's what he was doing for work oh yeah yeah, yeah. i mean like we always had guns and like i mean it was like detroit is also still super fucking gully i mean yeah. it is Still, like, I mean, people, it's amazing. I'm not, it's not a competition, certainly, but like, right. people are talking about Chicago. Like, Chicago ain't got nothing on St. Louis. St. Louis got like three times the murders of Chicago. Sure. Sure. And Chicago's big, and there's like a lot of crime, and it's super terrifying, and it's super like the worst product of America. But like, Detroit is like number three, and Chicago's like number 11. Right. On mur- I mean, there's still a lot of fucking crime there. It's still... Yeah, you don't have to look hard for trouble in no, Detroit. No, 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 I mean, I, what I always used to say, like, maybe 10 years ago, before the development really started happening, is like, you can, you, there's no place you can live in Detroit where you don't hear gunshots. Like, that place doesn't exist. And there's no place where you can't, like, walk for 15 minutes and, like, 
buy dope. You know, on the street. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's still that life. And they hadn't really, because the density, the Detroit's 138 square miles. So there's, it's so insane. Yeah. And when it's, it peaked at 1.8 million, but they're kind of building towards 2.5 million. So the city is built up towards 2.2, 2.3 million, but there's only 600,000 people there. Right. So there's just all this empty space. So the kind of clustering that would happen in a place like, Baltimore or something where you could say, well, this corner is indicted. We're going to put signs, you know, the kind of sign that you put over a payphone that says like, no, you can't use a payphone between 12 and six, like payphone curfews. Right, right. Like that stuff didn't exist in Detroit because it was more just like plugging all the holes in, in the dike. I mean, they completely give up on it. Yeah, I mean, well, Henry Ford said, Henry Ford, America's favorite anti-Semite, yeah. uh, said... You know, we will we will solve the problem of Detroit by like leaving it to destroy itself. Like, I mean, that was like a very much mm-hmm. <laughs> the ethos of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, it's I mean, some cities win, some cities lose. We'll see if it, we'll see how it does in its current incarnation. Right, right, because it's an uphill battle to at the moment. But people, it's an uphill battle that it seems like a lot of people are taking, or a, a number of people are taking on to revitalize it i mean there's people who are just there and who are going to be there and then there's the developer well so a lot of this started because this guy toby barlow who used to be the uh global ad head of ford moved from brooklyn he had like Uh this beautiful place in brooklyn Uh and so he was at this point in his career where you'd kind of do your tour in detroit and you do it for two years and it was pretty much like as a ford employee as a j walter thompson employee okay like super mega ad so i mean his budget's like 1.2 billion dollars a year or something like it's all the advertising for ford in the on the earth yeah like it's not right (laughs) it's pretty real like luckily there's like a lot of water on the earth so he only had to deal with 25 percent of the earth um but he moved back and he wrote like a series of op-eds because he wanted detroit to not fucking suck for him and it started i mean it's a real snowball effect because then people read about it in the times and they were like why is the New York Times writing? I mean, they still write a shitload about Detroit. Like yeah. Pete Wells just wrote a review of a restaurant in Detroit. I saw that. Like, but they didn't. There's no qualifier. There's no like. Well, there's one qualifier, which is you know the New York Times has been a fucking garbage newspaper for a long time, but it's become <laughs> even more garbage since they're not selling any print copies anymore. So they've made this. They're making this huge concerted effort to create readership outside of new york right uh so the stories are like you see you primarily see it there's a lot of la stories in it there are a lot of la stories. a lot of la stories because they want people in la to be looking at it on their ipad through a paywall so the only thing i was gonna say is that there is a qualifier in that they're writing a lot about stuff outside of new york that's totally fair i mean i never i've i have heard that i never matched that to restaurant reviews (laughs) it was weird because there's like there is a yuppie fascination with detroit oh totally well the craziest thing was that the editor of Bon Appetit was in town. Who, Adam Rappaport? Yeah. Adam and his wife, Simone, were in town. Uh-huh. And we were hanging out, and they were at a restaurant. And, they were, and Simone wrote me and was like, Pete Wells, we just ran into Pete Wells. What the fuck? Right. <laughs> you know, like, why, do, you know, is it like, is this like some other kind of Hamptons or something? And I mean... Whoa. That's a weird way to put it. Well, that's, I mean, like, Patty Smith said that, like, I just saw her walking down the street yesterday. Yeah, you know, Patty, she's cool. Uh Um, 
But Patty Smith said that like seven years ago, like a variety of other people have said, you know, versions of that. And I mean, the fact is, is that you can come and you can have... Well, her thing was sort of like, forget about the East Village and Brooklyn, yeah, exactly. it's done, go to Detroit and right, right. risk getting shot, but make art on your own terms. But she doesn't actually say... I mean, I think it's like, it's more like for those older people, and I don't mean that in any kind of dismissive way <laughs> or like these kids. Yeah. But like they're hearkening back to a time that they actually remember when shit was like when there were another set of risks that you had to take. Yeah. To take the artistic risks that you were actually trying to take. Right. Which were That's like a way to put it. You know I mean Cyril Baptista has told me that um back in the seventies when he was living in the East Village, once a week he had to buy his drums back from the same junkie. Yeah. He'd I mean, get home, go. the door would be swinging open, and he'd be like, oh, fuck. And he'd have to get five bucks, go down to the guy's place. Right. Give him the five bucks, get his drums back. And yeah. it's hilarious and cute to talk about it in hindsight, but that was the reality yeah. of living in East Village in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, without renter's insurance. Without renter's insurance. <laughs> <laughs> renter's insurance. Hey, man, renter's insurance. Wait, so you grew up with your mom. Yeah. And she also lived in like Detroit proper or somewhere in the burbs? We lived in Detroit proper, and then we ended up moving to a tra- beautiful trailer park um, <laughs> so that we could own our own place. Well, and so you we, know lived, what? we lived That's there deep. for six years. Yeah. Yeah. Did she, did she and your father maintain a relationship or were they were like- i mean my mom died a couple years ago and she like really blew my mind by telling me oh yeah like we were like boning that whole time what yeah like just like i mean she's living with a dude that she had been with the whole time i mean they're dirty they i mean my parents were both like they were both addicts but they were like really partiers i mean it wasn't really that dark because they were just like yeah man the world life is short you gotta like get it in get high yeah like you know like <laughs> And I mean, they weren't like they, I never heard either of them like ever, not once in my entire, like I never heard them like complain about a hangover or like shit being fucked up. It was just like, I mean, my dad had like the race thing. So he was, he was a pretty pissed off individual in general, but you know, they were just trying to like make it work. And Detroit was also pretty fucking magical then because it was, I mean, it was super like gutter, but at the same time there was still all like there was the the energy was still fully there. I mean, um, Greg Tate said something about how I... Is he from there? No. Uh-huh. But him and Arthur Jaffa did a talk there not too long ago, and Tate was saying like that you have to believe that there's like a comet buried under Detroit because of like what has happened in yeah. Detroit. Like that Ford and techno and Funkadelic and jazz. And like, I mean, if you really start like drawing the big Mark Lombardi diagram of the shit... It's so ridiculous. Like the Dilla part of it, the the like really uh, the Motown part of it isn't even that crazy uh-huh. because of course that would happen. They're just like the big things that happen out of this crazy breeding ground, and that it's like the same in other places that there's something like different that creates that kind of space, and you could really feel that in still even in the eight. I mean. In the eighties is like when techno is happening. There's still, I mean, there's still so many bad fucking like Black Murda uh-huh. is still just there. Yeah, like they still like record. Like there are bands that are like really pretty essential, and then people are just around. Like you just but see them. Was Detroit? I, I would assume or guess that like people who are from Detroit, especially like of your father's generation, there's like a provincial sort of like. Like people tend to be into the sound of where they're from. Was mm-hmm. he like really into Detroit music, Motown music? 
I mean, my dad was Jackie Wilson's bodyguard when he was young. Yeah. So, like, he had a deep, real deep musical knowledge, like, when I was growing up. Like, we had Monk Records in the house. Right. So, like, I mean, I grew up with... Right. Like, that's one of those weird things, like, where we didn't have shit, but, like, we had Thelonious Monk, and we had John Lee Hooker. So, like, my (laughs) first... The first music I ever bought was John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker is so bad. Right, yeah. I've been listening Uh, to a lot of John Lee Hooker It's deep. It's It's deep. It's so bad. It's real deep, Yeah. He had like a deep conception and he had a lot to say. So there's a lot of material that exists. Right. Um, Did they, did they, I mean, did you start playing music early on? uh, No, I mean, we were kind of too broke. I mean, I fucked around a lot and then. But did they do what they needed to do to get you your your tools as a creative kid? No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were just like, fuck, what do we do with this little blonde bastard? Give him a basketball. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was pretty much like fend for yourself. And I mean, I grew up in bars and shit. Like I grew up like, yeah, I mean, I grew up like being like children should be seen and not heard. Like we can't afford childcare. So you're going to come to the bar. So we're going, oh, so like the adults are going to get lit. Just shut up and sit in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, here's, here's a like bowl of maraschino cherries and (laughs) some like, uh, bright red. Yeah. Like, uh, what do you call them? Like, placemats to draw on and like do your thing homie and then my mom my mom and my stepdad owned a bar for a while so uh did they make you work there yeah i mean i worked there that was like my first like early restaurant job like cleaning silver skin off ribs that's Um, a skill yeah yeah. i I just learned that skill uh like i was (laughs) i was a butcher apprentice a year or two ago yeah so nate woolly is our great mutual friend yes Years Shout ago, out to Nate. He's Nate the best. told me a couple of times. He's like, "Man, you got to know Ben Hall. You got to know Ben Hall. You guys." Have, and I, like, over the years, I sort of realized, like, I heard a lot about you through him, and I sort of began to put together why he would say that. Uh, and I think it's for a variety of reasons. One is the fact that I mean, I worked in restaurants since I was thirteen. Right. Uh, I had, where'd you grow up? I grew up in, in a number of places: upstate New York, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I grew up with a dad who made uh alternative income <laughs> and Fair enough. later oh, i'm gonna him. use that one <laughs> he, he had yeah, an alternative source of income that he later uh had an alternative living situation right. as a result of um but you so i mean like you do a lot of shit at, at least from my <laughs> perspective whether it's owning and operating a restaurant that in and of itself has operates in a way that is like separate different from other restaurants and has like an auxiliary function which serves the community that you live sculpture music the um the the website database of gospel and baptism.com baptism. check that shit out like any one of these things is like more than enough for one person to chew on <laughs> yeah tell me about it is it all one thing to you um well i think there's like a couple i mean I was because, I mean, you, you asked the thing about like, you know, where you, did you have the tools as a creative kid? I mean, I wasn't around, I got to be around, I, many of the benefits of being around my old man when I was a kid and even my mom. I mean, my mom is like, she was a pretty like class warrior. Like she did not like rich people, but then she had incredibly rich friends. Was she, she from a, a okay family? Well off? No, no. I mean, they were, they were pretty like hoodrat.com. <laughs> Um, I mean, she was on her own, like by the time she was 12, but she still managed to graduate high school. My dad didn't graduate high school. He was locked up. Um, and my mom, they met at the playboy club. My mom was playboy bunny. So serious. 
This yeah. gets deeper and, and deeper. my dad was like not a handsome man, but he had incredible game. Like up until the time he died, he always had like a thirty-year-old girlfriend. Really? Yeah. Like I mean, not handsome. Not by any you know, like some fucked up mixed race Shrek looking motherfucker. <laughs> like he was not. You know, he had like a twenty-three inch neck. Like he was not pretty by any terms. He look, you know, he's like a little bit on that George the Animal Steel right level. Um, right. Yeah, which is not you know, no one not is, the level that potentially you want to be at. Yeah, but he, you know, he had game and he knew how to circulate. So one thing that they did is they exposed me to different kinds of people, and because I was exposed to different kinds of people, I always knew that there. Were, I mean, I think you know, Joe Morris and I talk about this a lot because we have similar dead end kid uh, mm-hmm. backgrounds. Like I didn't graduate school. Joe didn't graduate high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to six different high schools and I didn't graduate. So I'm not that good at it. Mm-hmm. No, she can get that. Um, and so as a consequence, we really like looked very hard at like I, Joe and I, like what it means to be like somebody who like works at like, a. I felt like you just said Detroit. Angie Joe. Oh, <laughs> I was like Detroit's all in this and, apartment and it's today. Detroit, <laughs> Angie Cho, Detroit. Yeah, it's kind of it kind of works. That literally gave me chills a little bit. Like, <laughs> who the fuck is here? Like, am I? Did I just enter a Richard Price novel? Um, no. So that I think that when I kind of like ended up in college and I ended up around other people, I wasn't dismissive of anybody's experience. I was just like, cool. Tell me about that shit. Like, someone tells me. Oh, like we go to the Grand Canyon in the summer. I'm like, the Grand Canyon? What is the Grand Canyon? Right. Because I knew that other things existed. Whereas I think for a lot of kids, I mean, even like people who I work with and who are now my employees, the thing that they struggle with is that they haven't been exposed to things. So it's easier to shut that thing off Uh and just say like, no, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't want to know. I don't want to learn. And then very often that becomes kind of calcified into a value judgment about things well, that I mean, you what, haven't what ever... the source of that would seem to be vulnerability yeah totally absolutely and i'm not saying i mean to to our point earlier even about like the me too and like being so awkward that like you can't necessarily participate at right. certain times it was kind of like it never occurred to me to not participate like it's kind of the inversion of that i would you know someone would introduce a new thing i mean i very i have a very clear memory the first time that i had thai food uh-huh. And they were like, Thai food or Taco Bell? And I was like, well, I know what Taco Bell is, so I'm going to choose Taco Bell. Well, because I didn't, I really had no, and the people that I was with were like properly middle class college kids, and yeah. I was not a college kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they start talking about Thai food, and I'm like, fuck. And I couldn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable enough with them to kind of expose myself and say, oh, well, what is Thai food? And so yeah. then we went, and then I'm reading, and it says noodles, and so I ordered whatever I ordered, and I remember they brought it out, and it was crazy hot. Uh-huh. Like he said, "How hot do you want it?" And I said, "Not very." And he so said, this is no, like a real tyrant. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, "No, you said very." And I was like, "I did say the word very," and but- <laughs> and then I couldn't argue with it, and so I didn't really have the opportunity. And then they sent me this shit out, and it was basically inedibly hot. Right. I mean, it was Thailand hot. Having right. been to Thailand, I could say like there are different levels of hot that they fuck with over there. Um, but so anyway, to go back, I think all of these things. There was a certain period of time where I really started to become interested in things and had like a little bit of autonomy between the time that I was maybe like eighteen and twenty-four. And so I tried a lot of different shit, and I didn't really place a value on it. So I would like put like a little seed in the ground, you know, and I'll say like, well, what does it mean to be an artist? And they'd be like this. 
you know, like you got to go plant a seed. So I go plant a seed and then nothing would happen. And I would say like, nothing happened. They say like, well, did you till the soil? I'd be like, fuck. Right. So then I'd go back and till the soil, plant a seed, kind of only a little thing. And so I kept doing this to like a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. And after a certain point, people said like, oh, you have a tree now. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was planting radishes and I got a 21 day turnover. I was planting fruit trees. Mm -hmm. And so now a lot of these things have they they're fruiting in a way that i couldn't have manufactured if i tried Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. just by establishing relationships like going back to what we're saying about showing up like i know nate from when we were like much younger and like Mm -hmm. coming on the scene so for us at that time it made sense for us to play together but like now Nate is going to be like premiering with a New York Phil, mm-hmm. right? So you read about these relationships when you read old books and like how did Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg know each other, mm-hmm. right? Like that type of shit. And it's like, oh, well, partially it's just because you care about humans and you care about something other than yourself, mm-hmm. which is usually art, which gives you a shitload of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think with all of those different things, I didn't really, I didn't think any of them would actually catch. I was just doing them to do them. To see and new then, things. Yeah, and I mean, I have some, like, I'm good at starting things, and I'm fairly good at following through. Yeah. So then, all of a sudden, like, things are things, and you establish relationships, and then, you know, people co-sign you to other things that you wouldn't necessarily be involved in. I mean, a friend of mine just said, like, oh, you know, baptism, I know you guys have already talked, but, like, I want to reintroduce you to my people at the Library of Congress, and I'm like, that would be really cool because <laughs> I could use 40 bucks to like keep uploading these things. You know, now it's like 6,000 items, which doesn't seem like that much. Oh, it's huge. Are you kidding me? But like to digitize something in real time takes a long yeah. ass time. Like all of those things take time, right? So yeah. it's more luckily because I am a manager of people, it's getting easier to do that. But you it's learn still, how, right. There's still like a return on investment time management issue, especially now that I'm married because I very much like my wife and she very much Be likes cool to see me. her from time to time. Yeah, and I mean like we really enjoy spending time together. So then it's like, well, how do you... F- I didn't really have that time before like when I was dating. Right. I definitely made decisions where people were like, what are you doing later? I know we weren't going to see each other till Thursday. And I'm like, well, digitizing. I have, yeah, I have shit to do. <laughs> and digitizing like, records. <laughs> yeah, like this is not like whatever you're suggesting and I have an idea of what it is. It's not, if I don't do this, it will not get, get done, done, period. So there's a lot of that. Spoken like a true manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Hey, somebody's got to like open the doors and mop the floors, you know? <laughs> so you, you didn't finish high school but you went to Bennington. Yep. And did you study with Milford there? I did. I mean, that's ostensibly why I went because Rafe and Charles were there too. Charles Gale. Um, oh, that's right. So like they were like Rafe Malik. Yeah. Uh huh. So I was like, I, I mean, I had a plan. So you'd already discovered free jazz. Yeah. I mean, I knew it from when I was young. Even. I mean, I knew it through jazz, mm-hmm. and then I think I got like you know I probably had like. Pharaoh and I knew about Sonny Chirac definitely when I was like a teenager. So, because I had seen Sonny when I was like 19 or 18, like live, the, the uh, like one of those like goofy late double quartets or double trios. And it was outstanding. I mean, I don't mean to dismiss it because those records are not that good because the recording, like, you know, it's like whatever compressed drums and shit yeah. inside they don't sound that good on record right but like live i mean it was like murder oh it was total f- murder so fucked up yeah um 
so yeah, I had discovered that stuff and I had been playing. I mean, I did like a lot of like rap and hip hop stuff when I was young, like DJing and yeah. like fucking with drum machines and, but not really having any outcome. Uh-huh. And so then when I got to Bennington, I mean, I, I wanted to study with Milford. He had just won a Guggenheim, so he's on sabbatical for the first year. I was like, what the fuck does that have to do with me? And in their propaganda... What the is a sabbatical? <laughs> well, in their... I mean, I say propaganda. I'm yeah. going to teach there this fall, so you I really? should be like, <laughs> like pump the brakes. In, in their materials. In their materials, sorry. Um, in their materials, you know, it says like that they have this... Well, Dixon created it as like the eighth department, which was like the black music program. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm going to go there and like fuck with some like black music that like acknowledges that it's black music. Uh huh. Well, that's, that wasn't there when I got there. Dixon no longer taught there, which I knew. Rafe had just stepped down, Charles left, and Milford was on sabbatical when I got there. So I was just like, so there was nothing. So I went into the music department and they were like, you know, I mean, it was just like Schoenberg and right. Canis Firmus. And I was just like, that's not really what I'm about. And then it was a thing where, like, uh, Kitty Brazelton, oh. you know, told me, like, oh, you got to do this, otherwise you ghettoize yourself. And I was like... She said that? Yeah. I was like, check, please. Like, yeah. you can't... I mean, just real talk, like, you're not supposed to say that about black folks right. or Jewish folks. I right. mean, if we're going to, like, all things equal. Um, so I was lucky enough, Joel Chatterby was there. Um, I don't know. Joel Chatterby is like a underground hero, like a lovely music, um, New Albion type dude. Okay. Um, he has some records on Lovely, and he worked with Jan Williams, who was the percussionist who worked with, who was most, he was at Buffalo and was most closely affiliated with Morton Feldman. Okay. Deep dude. Yeah. And then this other guy, Randy Neal, who uh, ran the GRM studios and ran the Zanaka summer program in France. He was like the chef de pedagogie. So like all of a sudden they were like, well, what are you working on? I was like, well, I'm working on this. And they were like, do you have a problem working with electronics? And I was like, no, because I also I had like, you know, not synth, but like drum. 808s. And, yeah, yeah, sequencers. And like I had some, you know, I'm like growing up on techno too yeah. at the same time. Detroit. Yeah, Detroit. So like Jeff Mills, um, obviously. Um, it wasn't that easy for or it wasn't that difficult for me not to think of it in another way. And so I usually worked with them and then I worked with Susan Scorbati who was in, uh, who's an improviser, but she was also studying complexity theory, like as it relates to like uh, the evolutionary, evolutionary biology and the evolutionary properties of improvisation Mm -hmm. and how you can like map it uh, into your neural pathways. Right. So yeah. (laughs) Can't argue with that. So like I got into that class right away and I was like, Oh, this is this other shit. And then, so Milford had like one ensemble class and then I would, which was kind of terrible because no one, you know, I mean, he always liked me because he'd come in and he'd be like, you know, the thing about Art Blakely is, and everybody would be like, who the fuck is Art Blakely? Art Blakely. Gotta be. That's, that's Milford's particular. Art Blakely. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You know, when he tried to do drum orgies, see, the thing is, Art Blakely is just higher, you know, like Uh beef, beef talk. For real? Well, you know, I mean, just like what it is, because like Milford came up in Latin bands. Yeah. So he's a timbali player first. Well, you can hear it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Which I was down because I had been studying with Juma Santos, who is, who played on Bitches Brew. Mm Mm-hmm. So Juma ended up in Michigan somehow. So I was taking cl- cl- lessons with him on West African stuff. So I was playing a lot of kunga when I got to Bennington. So then Milford was just like, you're not that good at trap kit. And I don't know about these electronics, but 
you could play kunga. <laughs> you know, like, I'll let you play clave. Uh-huh. Which he was like, for him, coming from a Latin band, he was like, oh, it's important that you could play like Shaker Ray or you could play clave. Right. Um, not that I was that good, but I was like worlds better than all the other students. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the class who weren't, you know, they were kind of just like fucking around mm-hmm. and they wanted to go to Milford's class because, I mean, and, and this was something I was going to say about like, I mean, this was like a lot of their first interface with an adult black male in an authority position. I mean, a pretty intense one at that. Yeah. I mean, no joke. So then like, is not a, a light dude. No, no, not at all. But I mean, it goes back to what I was going to say about restaurants in Detroit. So like the chefs are like hiring, like, I mean, they're finding white dish- dishwashers somewhere in Detroit. White and, like, dishwashers. Pr- primarily white, white staff, back of house, front of house. And you, it's hard to knock. I mean, there is an obvious knock there, but it's like they don't know any black folks. So when they are faced with like, do I hire a white dude or a black dude? They hire a white dude. In Detroit? Yeah, yeah. So it's I, you know, just to go So the compl- restaurant scene in Detroit right now is like fully, I mean, well, it makes it the same as Bennington because like Bennington was like, I mean, Vermont's the whitest state in the union yeah. and Bennington is super white, not because they're like working on inclusivity. No, no one applies. Right. So when I applied to Bennington, I mean, I was 24 or 25 and- Doing undergrad. Yeah, and I had seen Milford at like the second Vision Festival. Yeah. Um, because I was in touch with Joe Morse a little bit. And then I think Bruce Eisenbile, oh, name wow. check. I heard that hashtag, in a while. Hashtag Eisenbile, <laughs> came to Detroit and had flyers for the Vision Fest. Like had brought them with him that were uh. like on his merch table. <clears throat> and I still have it somewhere. But they were like these big fold out monstrosities and it had all the pictures. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll go see Joe. I'll go to New York and like whatever have yeah. a bagel like yeah. i mean i didn't know shit right, right, i was right. just like i know i can get in the car and drive to new york and so i came to new york and my the woman i was dating then her sister lived here so we stayed with them up on the upper west side come down to the sh- show and then that saturday night i saw milford and i didn't even know i knew milford i had uh albert eiler love cry yeah yeah so yeah. i had love cry so i knew him from love cry but i didn't really know that he was still alive. like i mean his this is pre-internet, or it's right. like on the edge of you the internet. I assume everyone's dead. <laughs> I assume everyone's Me dead. Too. So, and it was like he played with Kid Jordan, Charles, and William Parker. Jesus, that's a heavy band. Yeah, and they were, you know, and Milford kind of stops in the middle of the set, and he's like, "We just met Kid. I just met Kid Jordan right now," and then like goes back to the drum kit, and you know, starts right. playing again. And Charles was playing piano, and then Milford's playing. I mean, it was so deep, and it was on Saturday night, and I got there early. And I like look back and now there's like 800 people behind me. Like the whole place had filled out or however many, it was at Orenson's. Uh-huh. And it said in the program, this guy teaches at Bennington College. And I was like, well, what Ooh. kind of place would let that maniac <laughs> teach? It's so really, then when I- That's a really good question. When I called them, because it's on the edge of the internet, it just said like, you don't need SATs, ACTs or high school diploma. So I was like, ah, yeah, this is this is built for me. I don't think I knew that. Well, it's <laughs> what I found out later. Um, I thought that it was like Hood Rat University. Come on in, Hood Rat. Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> here's a wheel of cheese. It's actually for like Waldorf kids and oh. like people who go to alternative high schools that don't have grades. Oh, and, yeah. It's like a total. It's not for us. <laughs> it's not for me at all, or us. Um, not at all. And I mean, I told this story at Bennington not so long ago. Uh, I got like a, when I was getting ready for my research fellowship, um, I told this story that when I went there, you know, I called and they said, you talk to your, um, 
you talk to your and I couldn't tell this story for a long time because it was so incredibly embarrassing like because the language is encrypted a student answers the phone in admissions and says you know you go to your high school counselor and I'm like do I not do I tell this person I'm, I didn't finish high school and you're 24 tell, years old yeah, yeah like what do I say so I was like oh well, I don't really have that and they were like, no, I'm pretty sure they have that. And they're trying to talk me through it. But it's also a child. It's like an 18-year-old. Who doesn't know anything. And they don't know how to talk to me. They don't know how to answer the question that I was asking. Which and is, the question was? How do I get like a I brochure? <laughs> so that I could see what I have to do. So they send me the... Th- so I'm talking, talking. And they said like... I finally say I think like I'm 24. And they say, oh, you want a graduate application? And I said, sure. And... Uh, uh. They sent me the application, and then so a dude I played in a band with, I said, man, you went to college, right? And he was like, I mean, I didn't graduate, but I went. <laughs> and I said, well, can you take a look at this? And he starts looking through it, and he says, this is for graduate school. And I said, well, yeah, I told him I want to graduate. Oh. Yeah, I mean, because oh. I didn't know the difference between junior college. Sure, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it was just like, it said Bennington College. It's so- a graduate, yeah, I want to do that. Right, but I didn't actually know what graduate school was. I didn't understand the difference between like a master's degree. Sure, a, I didn't understand why it was called. I still don't really understand why it's called undergraduate. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't it be like graduate, graduate plus, and like, I mean, shouldn't they start at graduate or like? I'm just saying, maybe they want to make a little that. more sense. It's a little bit like well, they don't want us to understand it. Yeah, they don't. They want, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like in, inches and feet. Well, I mean, the language is encrypted, and you don't really yeah. understand that. I mean, I just thought that it would be a good place for me because I had seen Milford and the language that they had around the music program. I mean, in Milford's thing, it said, we will study cognition and precognition. Exactly. And I was like, yeah, I want to be able to see the future. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it might work good in music, but could you imagine how it would work at a casino? I mean, if, 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 you, if you had like a lineup here and Milford was in a lineup of 10 people and you said, pick out the one guy who could teach you how to see into the future, he'd be like, that guy right there. Right. And I mean... To Milford's point, I mean, there are the Casimiri effect. They have studied this, that atoms do jump into the future to make sure the future is there. And then they jump back into the present and then they move into the future. And then they just cut. Atoms are constantly doing that. What? Yeah. The Casimiri effect. I mean, that's like some real shit. So like, he's not wrong. No, no. I don't think he's ever been wrong. I mean, he was, you know, here's a quick thing I'll say about Milford. uh Have you you had him in here? No. Oh, it'll be good. I would love to, but I have to give him like a thousand bucks to come over. Uh, Who is this? He, I've I've met Milford a couple of times and it was always, I've recorded him a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And one time I was recording him and I was putting a, you know, like a 57 on the snare drum. He's like, no, put it under the drum. And I was like, well, you know, he's like, no, no. And I realized he wanted me to mic it like a timbale. Yep. And I did it because, like, okay, that's what you want. Like, it sounds fucking weird. It doesn't right. sound good to my ears, but it's like, who am I to argue with Milford Graves? Right. You know? Yeah. That's oh. Milford. I mean, when, so that was, like, the iconoclast part of it. So, anyway, that's how I got to Bennington. And then, I mean, I found, like, a variety of different... I mostly studied mediation while I was there. Um, so, Susan Scorbati, who now runs the Center for the Advancement of Public Action, yeah. where I'll be research fellow in the fall... She was the one who was studying complexity theory and improvisation, and she was just kind of inventing this on her own. And then so, like, these think takes were saying, like, oh, you're actually doing the practical thing. Like, we're just doing the theorization, and you're saying, like, how does it imprint on bodies in real time? So you're the perfect person to... So then her, she was doing that, and at the same time, her and this other guy, Danny Michelson, were running a conflict resolution program that ended up like doing things in Palestine, and I mean, they did like a lot of deep yeah. shit, and they still are working on this stuff. 
and thinking about how conflict. So now the Center for Advancement of Public Action, it does like things. So I'll be, I'll be basically my class while I'm a research fellow will be, we're basically just taking apart the farm bill. Uh-huh. And then, like, trying to figure out what the poetics of the farm bill are. Wait, hold like, on a second. I got to send a quick text because I was supposed to meet someone at three. I'm just going to let him know I'm going to be a little bit late. <laughs> hold on. Uh, wait, so you own a restaurant. How the fuck are you going to do all this while you're. Well, I have a really good team. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. Because. Hold on. Did we talk about the restaurant? Should we talk about restaurants? We don't need to talk about restaurants. Like a restaurant, I I was I was a restaurant manager for years as a day job, and I finally had to give it up because it's like as a restaurant manager, you are there to absorb all the bullshit of the restaurant owner. Yeah, yeah, meaning it's a like, terrible job. It's the worst job in the world. You put yeah. you in a large, especially if it's a successful restaurant, mm-hmm. you put your life on hold completely. Yeah, you for you forgo going to weddings and and. and birthdays and all that shit so you could be there and right. explain why it's an hour and a half wait for a table right which people love to hear they love it oh <laughs> but how yeah, explain me to something while i have low blood sugar <laughs> yeah just oh i can't I, wait to hear this i hate restaurants so much man. They're, they're terrible places here's the thing I, I don't want to talk about restaurants but i'll say this and this is the thing that's been really fucking bugging me out lately it's like and i know you run your restaurant in a way that you know actually has some integrity and I meant that as a compliment. That sounded like, like a weird. That didn't that sound completely no, like fine. a compliment. It's fine. But like, like, I feel like most restaurants, they basically operate like racist Ponzi schemes. Yep. And you know, it's a thing where it's like you go into a restaurant and you have these like cute white hipsters who are like you know culturally literate, you know, taking your order. But then you go to the back of house and it's all people of color who are making you know a third of the money and are being fucking targeted by a racist president. Like it doesn't. Yep. It's not. It's not a utopian vision of what can be in this stupid country. Yeah, I mean, I think when I, that's so we we make uh, soup for public schools and we make soup for the food bank, and those are like those are kind of our target audience now. Like, yeah. so we make we make soup for Hospice of Michigan. We make soup for the hospital that like uses the soup as part of their prescription for people who are on diabetic treatments. Right. Uh, when the soup goes into the public schools, it's 55,000 kids. Who, so you're operating like a commissary. Yeah, I mean, the kitchen is still small as hell. And like, yeah. we'll be in Houston public schools now, but, you know, people are saying like, I mean, so when we like, our soup company is profitable and good. The, the restaurant, name of the restaurant is Russell Street Deli. Yeah, and so is the soup company. Okay. Um, and we've been having meetings with bankers and like a lot of VC people and people who are like, who one food guy told another guy and this guy like did this thing for bare naked granola. And if, if he, if you gave the company to him now, like he could take you into the next stratosphere and we're kind of like, yeah, but then it wouldn't look like what we do now. And everybody's like, boo hoo. And like, why do you do soups? Cause you only make 1%. I'm like, well, a restaurant without booze only makes 1% anyway. Right. That's the national restaurant associations figures right. and 80% close in the first three years. Right. So we've already beat that. Like the restaurants three have been years open. Three years is a fucking miracle. Yeah. So we've been open. My business partner, Jason and I have owned it since 2007. So we're coming up on 12 years. The restaurant's coming up on 30 years. I mean, it's not nothing. So we understand that there's like a social 
practice issue, and I don't mean that in the art sense, I mean in the idea that like there is actually a sociality that we are trying to present day to day or a space that that can be created. So like in the art sense, we actually think of it as like a long term sighted project, Mm -hmm. like in the same way that like Judd would think of Chinati. Like Mm -hmm. we're like, but instead of making the chairs, we're like, well, how do we make the employee employee manual so that people can have autonomy and sovereignty as human beings while they're working a 14 hour an hour job in an 83% black city with a 10th grade education? Like, what does that mean? Because then we're hoping it's not like we're trying to be disruptors because of that term, but like, is there an exportable model there that can actually change the way that chefs... Because chefs, well, the chefs problem, are the only people who are going to figure this shit out. The problem, like you just outlined the solution, but also the problem, which is most restaurant owners today, especially if you know they're following some celebrity chef trajectory, is to transcend the restaurant and and parlay it into you know book deals and and TV shows and having a sense of celebrity, which is where they make their real bread. The other side of it is these people aren't interested. Most a lot of these people couldn't give a fuck about the livelihood of their employees the actual livelihood you know and if you invest in your employees even just like on a personal level it the the difference is night and day i've worked in all manners of restaurants at everywhere from dishwasher to gm and it's so consistent you can walk into a restaurant as a customer. I can anyway, and I know exactly who what kind of person is running the place based on the interaction I have with right, right, the right. front of house people. I think it takes an artist to, as you said, like looking at it as an installation. <laughs> yeah, it's because you're looking at it in abstract terms. Well, I think, but both also like the kind of like Wendell Berry, like the poetics of it. And I would say, like, the poetics are separate than, like, an art or com- commercial, like, that you're, th- the goal is commerce, right? So if the goal is ego or, like, whatever the goal is, it doesn't matter because, like, anybody who runs a farm-to-table restaurant, like, for instance, or anybody who says, like, we are, we think that sourcing is important. Well, why do you think that sourcing is important, right? So you say that, like, well, I think sourcing is important. Eventually, they're going to have to say the word ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, well, if you don't think that, like, the ecosystem of bodies that exist in your restaurant, in both your customers and your staff, is important, then the ecosystem is going to die. Like, you're not actually managing the ecosystem correctly in a way that any farmer would describe it or any... Anybody who plants anything or grows anything, like, you got to have air to breathe. And that air sometimes is, you know, you can... There's there's these kind of false equivalencies that to say like well to keep the business open, like we have to we have to do this because there's one flexible cost and it's labor. That's the only flexible cost in a right. restaurant. But like we looked at it like from so we bought in 2007 with the hope of selling the restaurant immediately. Because, well, you were to flip it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, we we're gonna flip it. You were hoping yeah. to make money or you just no, we were gonna make some money. Because we were buying it at like a good price. The right. previous owner owned two restaurants. And he was like retiring or something? He just couldn't get it done. Yeah. And he had basically like, he had, I don't know. He had disinvested from, in a lot of ways. You know, it's like he used to cook the, his own turkeys. And then yeah. he started using like uh, processed turkey. Cisco, and then he started, yeah. yeah. And then it like got like incrementally cheaper at each level. So it was kind of barely holding on. And we were just like, well, we could just buy it. We know what's wrong with it. We can work real hard. We can fix it and sell it to somebody and make like our real big goal 
was to buy it for 175 and sell it for 250. That was like our really like we we're going to make 37 grand uh-huh. a piece. Uh-huh. And then we pay taxes. Like that was our goal. Yeah. Cuz we figured like when else are we going to get 25 in grand in cash a piece at at one time. Yeah. Like that's like winning some kind of like 25 grand is yeah. money. Yeah. Right? Um it's still money and it's still definitely money for most of the people that I work with and a lot of our customers like the average income. Say it's probably the annual salary. Well, the it. average income for a family of four in Detroit right now is twenty six thousand four hundred dollars. So fucked up, man. Yeah. So I mean, just to like put it in perspective. Yeah. So if you if you serve like a twelve dollar small plate, well, that's according to the USDA, that's like about you know seventy two percent of what somebody can spend that week. So it's like okay, well, you ate that twelve dollar small plate of beets and whatever, and now you still have twenty meals you got to fill for the rest of the week. So, I mean, it's the economics of it kind of like kept pushing us back. So when we we were like on an early panel and we read the NRA thing that said National like, Restaurant Association, na- National, yeah. sorry, the other NRA, um, we read that uh, restaurant without booze on average makes one to three yeah. percent. And so that you don't have booze. No, that's we own a liquor. Li- it's there's a whole sure, that's sure, a sure, whole sure. another. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're just like we're just selling it like breakfast and lunch clean working it but once we said that one to three percent we had we had done well for the first couple of years we couldn't sell it because it was 2007 nobody had nobody, money yeah, yeah, Bank, yeah. banks aren't giving any money and then w- what we really figured out is like well if it's one percent we can make one percent somehow why would we fail on somebody else's model so we looked at every part of the restaurant and we just said like well that's somebody else's model that's not our model that's, a, that's the existing codified model which produced a bunch of outcomes that no one seems very happy with. Mm-hmm. So I think when you go back to like think about, I mean, and I talk a lot of, uh, to a lot of chefs and when they say like, you know, I have these three restaurants or I do this thing or, you know, I mean, we, we've talk, we started to talk about this initially, like what it means to have like shared tipping. And I talked to Ryan Sawyer about this. And Sawyer had like a very beautifully nuanced argument, but the kicker for for keeping tips. Yeah, I, you, I, at the end of the day, I've, I've worked restaurants with both, and I against I, I am begrudgingly still for the tip system. Yeah, and I mean I don't even knock that because like you're in the business, but you also got to like make your money. But I think that like long term, like someone has to kind of like. The spaceman has to delink from well, the space I mean, station. The truth in the matter is, is if we're gonna have a system. Sorry, music people. Yeah, <laughs> where where people they you know, they all eat. Right? Well, the truth in the matter, the ugly truth is that if restaurants charge what they should be charging to pay everyone fairly, to pay insurance, yeah. to look out for their own. I mean, food would be two and three times more expensive than it really is. Yeah, I mean, anytime you go to a restaurant, you are. In fact, viewing a menu through smoke and mirrors yep. and a sense of fucking bullshit—it's it, like it's—it's all—it's that's why I say it's like a Ponzi scheme because yeah, you're not is. paying oh, I'm gonna what use it's that worth. Too. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, I almost feel like well, maybe there should be two tip lines on a check. You know, one for in back of house and one for front of house. You right. know, and if the service sucked, but illegal the food was according great, to the Department of Labor. Right. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but it. I you know I did some work last year again. Sorry, music people. I did some work last year. Uh, helping my friend's restaurant who is a tip-free restaurant kind of helping get their staff together like a consultant and what i saw of the people who were working for an hourly rate i mean it was like a soup kitchen right you know these people couldn't give a fuck you know and when i would talk to them about like look you know i need you to turn tables a bit faster you know all right you got to pay me more 
Like, right. No, that's not the deal. The deal yeah. is you're making 25 bucks an hour, you know, which yeah. is arguably very good money. You just got to yeah. do your job. Like that incentivized shit is out. Well, I think, I mean, that's where it's like with all the one fair wage stuff that's happening right now, even like when people like, when people, when it hits $15 an hour, people are going to have to deal with it anyway. Like yeah. they're going to have to deal with those same things. And I mean, one of Ryan's things was that, well, you know, a lot of places, and I mean, I've heard this a lot, like a lot of places are using it as like a new way to kind of like rip off employees because there's still yep. a tip line on top of whatever the wages are. Totally true. But that means that the onus is going to end up, I mean, this is where like the language becomes a bit revolutionary. And it's like, well, then the onus is on the employees to tell the employers to fuck off. Well, in a place like New York, that's where, fucked up. Yeah, the victim should tell the abuser. Like, Well, see, that's where it gets a bit complicated yeah. because, well, then who's in charge? Do we just allow the abuser to stay in power? Because then I, it means <laughs> that like we, it means that like two, three generations from now, like, the next versions of us are going to have the same conversations and they're still going to be broke and they're still going to be fucked up. I, I hate restaurants, man. I really do. And, you know, for like, I know a guy, he's a friend of mine. He owns a, a few very successful restaurants in New York and he's a good dude. Is he a tr- person with a troubled past? Yes. And he knows he's been warned. It's coming. There's a, there's a story coming out on like Eater, one of those idiotic websites. Um, about the way he used to conduct himself at a restaurant. No sexual stuff. Right. But just being an aggressive dude who, you know, probably crossed several lines in the way he talked to staff. And it's like, number one, that's a boring fucking... Yo, I used to work <laughs> at a restaurant five years ago, and the guy that owned the restaurant spoke to me in a condescending way, you know? Right. Yeah. But also, <laughs> like, that's... that's different, always, <laughs> different people have different kinds of trauma. But it's always been the nature of this stupid business. And yeah. until the business gets honest, that's going to continue to be the nature of it. Well, and I think, but I think that, like, the tip thing, like, it, it pushes towards this idea that you're going to actually see an honest accounting of what the money is. In the same way that, like, you know, when people, I think when people win big financial awards in the arts, it's like... Is there any artist, even like shitty artist, that doesn't deserve a hundred grand for the time that they've put in? <laughs> and they're only going to get to keep seventy-two of that, and they yeah. probably owe like thirty to fifty grand in student loans. And it's only once, so yeah, you're so basically like, giving them a hundred dollars. I mean, it's not like I don't think that it's it w- but it's odd. I think it, for people who aren't in the arts, who are like, well, no one ever gave me a hundred thousand dollars, and it's like, well, yeah, you didn't do shit, right? Like, you didn't do shit to, like, differentiate yourself so you can go buy a lotto ticket like everybody else. We bought different sets of lotto tickets. Right. Right? Like, it's just a different lotto ticket. And if you don't... And, I mean, it comes up when people win money. You invariably hear someone who seems pretty chill be like, so-and-so didn't deserve that. And it's like, even if if I'm not really riding for that person, I'm like, they probably deserved it. Like, if you divide practice time but also like don't root like you know it's like those things where like you see like a really like gorgeous woman and they're, <laughs> and they're like oh yeah her boyfriend's a real dork you're like what do you mean he's just like a nerd it's like isn't that a good thing shouldn't you be root like what, <laughs> right. what you want her to be with some like jock asshole <laughs> no her boyfriend's like i was really concerned about where you were going with no, that but you know it's, what i'm saying it's like <laughs> listen if, if a musician gets the prize like or just he, anybody i mean people people are like I mean, this is where it goes back to the equality issue, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we were talking about other musicians earlier that, like, 
maybe don't get the call as much because they're nice guys or because they're a little bit goofy. Well, that's when you begin to really like accept that, oh yeah, it is just like a predatory world and we're just, you know, like <laughs> we're just like we're 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 predators and food walking around. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, well, to go back to the kind of like, you know, not trying to make mediocre improvisation um so you don't maybe take certain gigs i have just found that like i only want to play with my friends me too and i want to play with like people who i want to spend time with even if maybe they don't want to spend time with me (laughs) i'm like well what's up like i just want to spend more time with you yeah and getting together to like play a session or go on tour or play a gig is a good reason to like build up that kind of like aggregation of shared experience with another well, human I mean, being the activity of, of playing music yeah. together is the deepest, the deepest connection in my opinion. I would say making food and putting another human body, maybe slightly deeper Just say, you know, yeah, but no, well, I mean, super intimacy. I mean, well, latency, I mean there, it's a gas, so it does pass through your body in the same way. Right. I mean, I watched this idiot at the restaurant last night, you know, get this beautiful plate of food and immediately just like scrape off, you know, uh, like, I was like, oh, I just want to put your head through that table. <laughs> like, you know, I wish you would have. That'd be a good story. You know, here's the thing, man. If I owned a restaurant, it would be, A, here would be the Yelp scene. It would be a solid three and a half star restaurant, <laughs> all ones and fives. Right. And I would 86, like 50% of the customers. I had to leave my last job for a number of reasons. I quit, you know, mm-hmm. but I was just 86ing people like once a week. I'm telling people, <laughs> I'd just be like, you know what? No one asked you to come. I, you know, we were next door to a diner and in Detroit, we call them Coney Islands. And on Saturday, I mean, our line gets 30, 50, 80 people deep. Sure. You know, and everybody's got to be there. Oh, they're parking. Yeah, I know. I'm sure they're parking. And when they're finished, when they're finished parking, feel free to have them come over here. And every so often, you know, if it's like somebody I know a little bit or the vibe's right or they don't seem to be tripping, you know, I might say like, you could call them and get their order. If you really think they're only 10 minutes away, but we're not going to refire the food. We're going to fire it now when you sit down, like kind of like Kunjip in Koreatown. Like they take your order before you sit down. So when you sit down, you get your fucking food. Eat the fuck out. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like they don't want you fucking, they're like, what's all this time that you are sitting down waiting for your food? That's dead time at the table. Yeah. And that's dead rent. So when we do that, I mean, I think it's like what I try to do is like remind people that they should chill out but you know when sometimes people get huffy in line and usually they're either performing it for the people that they're with or even sometimes for the line Mm -hmm. like oh you're in a service position i'm gonna talk this way to you i say well i can accept it because i'm the owner and i don't really give a shit right i'm here actually for my employees yeah like i can go get another job not all my employees can immediately go get another job I'm going to knock you the fuck out. (laughs) No, and I just say, like, you can go next door. Yeah. Like, feel free to leave the line at any time. Yeah. And they're like, well, what is that supposed to mean? And then, you know, I mean, I've had people, like, issue all kind of threats. I'm like, and I'm not, like, a small person. Right. I'm like, yeah, well, whatever you want to do, if you do it in the restaurant, like, just so you know, this is a private establishment. (laughs) Like, feel free to, like, turn it on. Like, I will totally, like... Tickle torture you. You know, one of my favorite things I used to say to people, and I I got the same response every single time, which was just like jaw on the floor. If something wasn't right, you know, people were waiting too long, whatever the fuck it was, they would say, you know, I've never been treated this badly in my entire life. And I would just say, sounds like you've had a great life. 
Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, if you're telling me that waiting 30 minutes longer than you should for a right, table right, is right. the worst thing that ever happened to you, let me introduce you to my friend, the rape victim. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's you know, a good one. You know about these Thai teenagers? Let me uh, call some of them. Right. Out. Seriously. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, but a big part of it is like not wanting my staff to be treated that way. Yeah. So, and because we're in like a very, we, I mean, we, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I've talked to like people who will do a panel or something and then people are like, oh yeah, you're riding and it's like this, you know, you have this like partially black owned restaurant in Detroit and it's this and it's that and you know, you have all of this empowerment and I'm just like, you know, it's just like equality. And also, like, it's not necessarily easy. Like, that is an exotic concept in restaurants. But like, sometimes like black folks trip out on the fact that we have black folks serving them. They don't like that. Yeah, they're like, I didn't, I didn't like work my whole life to like be like to stay in the hood. Like, I worked to get out of the hood to like come to like a white restaurant where like I'm gonna have a white server. Like, there are all sorts of dynamics. That's an interesting. And what you know, white people who are like, oh, like you have black people serve, you know, like. Just like who's on the floor when, and then old people, and then gay people, and then trans people. And it's like, so, you know, and what I just tell them, if there's any vibe, you know, I just say, send them to me. Because I'm like, first of all, I studied mediation. So Mm -hmm. I do know a little bit about talking to people and listening. And it's usually what I say at the end is like, if you're done, you can feel free to go. You know, and what I used to do at bars, like when men were shitty to women, and, and it took me a long time to figure this out. And I bartended at some pretty like serious bars in detroit mm-hmm. where there were like dope there were like a lot of people with guns i'll put it like that. oh that kind of serious yeah 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 Yeah, you know but they're also like district court judges right you know so there's like and you got to balance it and you, especially if you're a single bartender in a bar you really have to like and there's a hundred people in there you have to like really balance the social environment and my thing with men is if women were getting a vibe I would, you know, I would step up and I would say, like, how do you feel right now? Do you feel okay? And if it was a weird thing, I, there, were, there was only two steps. It was, like, back off. And it, if, they, if they didn't back off or they talked back to me, I would just pour out their drink. I would say, well, you're done. Yeah. I say, like, the next st- step is, like, either I come over the bar or we call the cops. Or I come over the bar and then I call the cops. And, like, how dumb are you going to feel when you're, like, I couldn't stop, like, being a drunk asshole. Then I got my ass beat. Then I went to jail. jail. Like, you're in a private establishment. You don't get to just do whatever the fuck you want and, like, treat people however you want. I'll I'll say this, man. My friend Patrick is a bartender at Max Fish. And I see him... Patrick Clarinet Patrick? Yeah, Patrick Holmes. Oh, man. Funniest, most Patty lovable, Holmes. The most lovable dude. I don't know planet. Patty Holmes. Oh, he's... But, the, like, the ben, the Nate Woolley Ben Hall uh, thing is, like, the Ryan Sawyer yeah, Patty Holmes. It's he's exactly like, right. Oh, man, you gotta, you gotta hang out with... Why don't you hang out with Patrick? No, he's... Dude, there's no one like Patrick. And I've been at the bar before hanging out, and Patrick's bartending, and I, I watch him. He does, you don't see him getting hot. You don't see him, like, you right. know, getting ready to explode. But if you if you pay attention, you can see the strikes ticking off in his head. <laughs> so someone's, like, you know, acting a fool, and they're talking some shit. And it's like one little thing, two little thing, and then he just goes, fuck you, I'm not serving you. And like, right. that's it. And you're like, what, what do you mean? He's like, get a drink from someone else. Get the fuck away from me. I'm not serving you. Right. And it's like, that's, to me, honestly... But see, I, restaurants can't really work like that because you can... There's one restaurant that does and it's my favorite fucking restaurant in the whole world and I was there eating last week and because like I've gained trust after like 150 <laughs> meals, like they know I'm cool. 
they like they 86 to table while I was sitting there and they're like dude watch this you're gonna love this you know and it was straight up like these people they arguably didn't do anything wrong are you gonna tell me what the restaurant is or are you gonna hold yeah, it Shopsons oh I figured greatest restaurant yeah. in the universe and they have very specific rules and it's like they don't need to tell you why those rules exist right you know, they didn't call you say hey man why don't you come on down for a meal like, yeah right they will not see the table larger than four they will not allow uh, people at the table to you can't like order two of the same thing Two people, if you and I sit down, we can't order the same thing. It's their rule. Hey, you know what? Again. Yeah. I'm, hey, I'm down. I, I'll explain it. But they, you know. And so these people sat down. And uh, the, there was a five top. And it was slow. So the waiter was like, should I seat him? Zach was like, yeah, fuck it. You know, it's slow. They seat him. And he goes over. He's like, you know, how you guys doing? You know, um, you know, can, can I help you? And they're like, uh, I want like a bagel. And he's like, well, we don't have bagels. You guys need another minute with the menu. And... Uh, I just want like some French toast. He's like, well, we don't just have French toast. And I'm, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, here it comes. <laughs> and he's Strike like, you one. know what? You got to go. Huh? What do you mean? You got to go. You guys are done. We're not going to serve you. <laughs> and like, these are people. Like, the, 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 the sick fucking me is like, these are people who've never been told no before. Right, right, right. You know? Well, it comes from privilege, but I think it's also like that is like, I mean, going back to just that it's like an exploitational space. I mean, there are a lot of analogs you could draw between the way that artists are treated and the way that people in restaurants are treated yeah and like what the customer or what the audience deserves for their nickel and it's never it's never a good realistic example of what was what had to happen to have that sandwich just, or performance or note I mean, performed you, you, you can't just walk around like this, you know, this fucking moron that's in sitting in the White House. Like, you can't just walk around flapping your gums, acting like, you know, wherever you go, the way you act is the law of the land. But you, you know? can, because, I mean, that's America. Way. You know, it's you like, know, but- I think, but that, I think that's like the, there are some like deep social uh, mores you that have in, been. You came into my house and you said, oh, should I take my shoes off? You didn't come in and say, Hey, I don't take my shoes off, you dig? <laughs> well, I, you know, in, in my defense, I got so excited to see the dogs that They're I good. forgot to take my shoes off or even think about it. You were like, here's the dogs. And I was like, oh, my God, dogs. All right. I think yeah. you did a good job. I got, I got to meet someone in like a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, I know. Dude. The best. Got to talk, yeah, totally. All right. That was Ben Hall. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's a he's a really extraordinary guy. My mic kind of crapped out there a bit at the uh, the end of that conversation. Ben Hall, check him out. He's really special. Go to cbenhall.com. He's got a lot of recordings. Uh, check out his label, Broken Research, all top shelf shit. And if you're in the Detroit area, go eat at Russell Street Deli. Support the good guys. Go to the 5049 website. Go to the Patreon if you are so inclined. www.5049records.com www.patreon.com slash 5049podcast And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.